Revelation chapter 13. We continue our study in the book of Revelation. We come here to chapter 13, about which there's been the most speculation, perhaps in any other part of the book. And I thought this might be a good time for us uh, to revisit and to discuss an important issue that has come up a number of times in in conversations after uh, the service. Um, Why did John use so much symbolic language? And, and the issue is all the more perplexing when you realize that the book of Revelation was written to reveal, and yet the symbols seem, in fact, to disguise rather than to reveal. And, and so I, I think just in different, in different conversations, people have said, you know, why is there so much symbolic language? Uh, why would he use symbols that we cannot understand? And... I would remind you that he didn't. I mean, that what the symbols mean, I think, is very clear if you look at the rest of Scripture, but we will come to that later. I think, though, that when we ask that question, and it's a question I've asked as well, um, that there are several assumptions, faulty assumptions, which are at work. The first is that if John had written the book of Revelation in a straightforward way, without symbols, I would understand it. As if, if, he had, if he hadn't done the symbols, if he had just done it straightforward, I would get it. And I, I really have to argue that that is a faulty assumption. Another assumption is that prophecy should be written in a straightforward way, um, that that's the way most prophecy is written. And again, I would say that this is a faulty assumption uh, when you look at Old Testament prophecy and its fulfillment in the New Testament. Another assumption is that the rest of Scripture that is written in a direct way is understandable. Some might even say easily understandable. And again, I would say this is a faulty assumption. And let's just take an example, just one statement that we find uh, in Scripture. It is the first thing that Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a statement This is a declaratory statement. It lacks ambiguity. There it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But what does it mean? I mean, it's a straightforward statement, and yet I think it requires study, meditation, being unpacked for us to have an appreciation of what Jesus is saying. So I would argue that something that is simply said in a straightforward way isn't necessarily more easily understood, I think there's this assumption that we make that, you know, if you just make statements, I'll get it and then I can go home. I think people would say that if John wanted to prepare his readers as, as he does, he should have done so in an unambiguous and clear way. I've told you before that John's purpose in writing this letter is for the people of his generation. He writes it about 64, 65 A.D., Very shortly, persecution will begin unprecedented in their lives, unprecedented in the life of the church. And he writes this 
that they are to endure and to stay pure. And I think some would say, you know, John, if that's what you wanted, you shouldn't have made it so confusing with all the symbols. You should have just said, this is what's going to happen. And then people would have been prepared. But consider some of the rest of Scripture, and I don't have time to, to go through all this. I would just ask you to consider what you know of Scripture, and the next time you go through Scripture, how often things are not said directly, but through the use of images or metaphors or similes. One is found in Psalm 23. We sang the hymn this morning based on that psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. We don't take that literally, do we? That's not a straightforward statement, is it? Is it not rather a metaphor for the fact that God provides for his people? And not something that is, I would argue, easily understood, but something that must be meditated upon, something that must be unpacked and studied. At this point, I wish I could read to you the entire chapter of Isaiah 40. Um, Perhaps that's something I should memorize. It's just an amazing chapter. Let me just read to you one, uh, actually a couple portions. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries those close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Wonderful, powerful, but not direct statements, but the use of images and metaphors to convey truth. Now, let's go back to the issue of symbols here in in this particular section of Scripture in the book of Revelation. Much of this is review because we've covered this before. I just want to remind you of certain things. When we study the book of Revelation, we are not free to assign to a symbol whatever meaning it is that we want to assign to it. The meaning of a symbol is not whatever we choose to make it. Uh, John did not create images in this book out of his own imagination. So as we have seen, Jesus Christ is presented as a lamb and a lion. Not because these are pretty pictures that we think, oh, a lamb is nice and soft and, and, and nice to touch and gentle and a lion is ferocious. No, he uses these images because they have already been established in Scripture. We shouldn't say, oh, I know what a lamb is. I know what a lion is. Therefore, I know what John is saying. We have to look at how these are used in the rest of Scripture. So it isn't simply a lamb, but it is a lamb that is slain. And not simply a lamb that's roadkill, that's been run over somewhere. It is a lamb that was killed as a sacrifice. And when it is a lion, it is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that he is the Messiah. So we're not free to say, oh, that's symbolic. And since it's symbolic, I can assign to it whatever meaning I want. No, we have to look at the rest of Scripture. Which leads us to the second point, and that is that John gets his images from the Old Testament. The language is that of the Old Testament. As someone has said, Genesis is the most New Testament book of the Old Testament. Revelation is the most Old Testament book of the New Testament. It's almost as though they should swap places 
because of the language that is used. As we have seen in our study, if one wants to know what John is saying, one must know the Old Testament. And if you don't know the Old Testament, then what John is saying, I think, will go right past you. But this raises a question. Why use the language of the Old Testament? Because this book describes the judgments that are coming on the people of the Old Covenant. The judgment that God is bringing on them for breaking the terms of the Old Covenant. They broke the covenant time and time again, and now the consequences are coming home. As Jesus told his listeners, And so upon you, that is the people who are listening to him, will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come on this generation. They had violated God's covenant. And as we've seen, the strength of a covenant or of a contract is in the penalty clause. Because otherwise, if there's no penalty for not keeping the agreement, then why keep the agreement? Well, go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Go back to the book of Exodus. God is very specific. If you do not keep my covenant, these are the things that will happen to you. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. And that is why the language is from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. I think also we should be reminded that mystery is not a bad thing. We are very much modern people. And uh, as people of the modern age, we don't, well, we don't have much mystery, it seems like. We seem to know how everything works. We seem to have figured everything out. Uh, and when, when something new happens, people are amazed. They, they think they found a new planet the other day. Oh, wow, something new. Uh, as though the, the universe has been fully mapped, but, oh, here was something we didn't know about. No, the world is filled with mystery. And, and if you doubt that, then just consider yourself. Do you know yourself? How well do you know yourself? I'm fairly mysterious, I think, to myself. Micah read to us from Romans 7. Um, You know, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Life is filled with mystery. And as I tell my students the university, I find it fascinating that as technology began to take off and everything seemed to be figured out, then all of a sudden, literarily, we have the genre of the mystery. That's when Sherlock Holmes comes along. And now we have all these mystery novels. Why? Because life has been emptied of mystery, and so now we have to create mystery. Of course, these mysteries are not well-named because at the end you figure out, you know, I mean, we wouldn't want there to be something we didn't understand, do we? So we like the idea, ooh, that's mysterious, but we know at the end we'll have it figured out. Of course, if you're anything like my mother, she always reads the last chapter first because she can't stand the suspense, and then she reads the mystery. Well, you know what? Even as John tells us, he's in the presence of God in chapter 4. The language is not as clear as we would like. Well, because there's mystery, and that is entirely appropriate. We've also seen that in the book of Revelation, worship is a dominant, if not the dominant theme. And the rituals of worship are symbolic. Consider the Lord's Supper. The bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood. These are symbols. We live with symbols all the time. It's just when, we, when they sort of get in the way, then we, we don't want them anymore, and we just want someone to make 
a straightforward statement. I've talked to you before about the fact that the nature of reality is symbolic, and if you have questions, we can come back to that later. But I would argue at this point that symbols are often more powerful than direct statements. I think they're far more powerful than we realize. It takes some sensitivity, but poetry can be far more powerful than a simple declaratory statement. And yet, being people of this age, I think being Americans, we, we want things spelled out. We don't want this mystery stuff, not this, you know, this poetry stuff. Just tell us what you mean so we can get on with the business. No, I think symbols can be in very powerful. And that is why God, through John, uses them. I've read this quote to you before, but let me read it again. Many people interpret, in quotation marks, the, the revelation as if, as if each detail of each vision had a definable meaning which could be explained in so many words. These commentators are rationalizers, deficient in the mystical sense. Symbolism is a way of suggesting the truth about those spiritual realities which exclude exact definition of complete systematization. I always have trouble with that word. That is why so, it is so much employed in worship. The symbol is always richer in meaning than any meaning we can draw from it. But I think some of you may be unconvinced. And I think you might, on the, on the surface level, say, yes, that's true. But then, as soon as we leave here, it's like, why the symbols? I mean, that, that just always seems to come to the forefront. He should have just said, you know, For example, what we're seeing here in chapter 13, what John is saying is, listen, guys, the devil's after you. He's going to use the Roman Empire as the political power and the Jewish nation as the religious justification for the Roman Empire. That's what if, if that's what you want, that's what he should have said. But instead, listen to what he said. He spoke, first of all, about the devil in chapter 12. An enormous red dragon who stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Here is the devil. He's, you can imagine a woman getting ready to give birth and he's, ready, he's right there that he might devour the child. That great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, John tells us the accuser of the brothers who accuses them before our God day and night, hurled down to the earth, filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. He is enraged because he has failed to destroy the woman, and now he goes after the rest of her offspring, the church, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is who is after John's readers. This is who is after the church. And to simply say, guys, the devil's after you, I think would have not had the impact of what John writes in chapters 12, and then it'll go through to chapter 19. The devastation that is about to come on the church of John's age, I think would seem to indicate that the devil is far more powerful than people ever imagined. It would seem that perhaps he is even God's equal. Without chapter 12, we would fail to realize that the devil has been defeated three times. 
First, in his attempt to kill the woman's child, the Messiah. Secondly, in the war in heaven when he's defeated by Michael. And thirdly, in his attempt to destroy the woman, God's people. And I think we would fail to appreciate that the devil doesn't simply work in one way, but he works in a number of ways. He tried to destroy the woman's child. He fights in heaven. And then he goes after the woman in the wilderness, opens his mouth, and water comes out. The devil doesn't just play one way or fight one way. And John's readers might not appreciate this if he had simply said, the devil's coming after you. But now they should know that he will attack them in terms of physical persecution. We saw that last week, the beast from the sea. He will, he will persecute them in terms of spiritual deception. This is the beast from the land. And he will persecute them, if that's the right word, by material seduction. This is the great prostitute, the harlot of Babylon. And in chapters 13 through 19, John will describe the various avenues of attack. And so, no, it would not be right for him to say, the devil's after you. Because that would not convey, I think, accurately or fully what was about to happen to them. Above all, I think John wants his people to know that this attack that is going to happen, this assault that will come on the church, is part of a continuity. It's been happening ever since the Garden of Eden. After, the, after Adam and Eve sinned, God said that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. And it's been war ever since. And the devil, that red dragon, has been trying to destroy humanity ever since. And so God's people who are about to be devastated by persecution need to understand this is part of a continuity, part of a continuum of persecution, the war between the dragon and the woman. This is an ancient hatred at work, and they need to realize that. So the devil is going to get you guys. Well, no, John gives us a lot more than that. He's going to use the beast from the sea. And we looked at this last week in terms of physical persecution. We saw that in the Old Testament, the sea represents rebellion. Um, the, the sea is always a place where danger comes from. And in terms of symbolism, it represents the Gentile nations. They are the wild ones out there with the waves. The land, on the other hand, represents God's people. They are the people of the land. That's where the second beast comes from. But the first one comes from the sea. The place of chaos and rebellion. But why a beast? And we, we didn't talk about this last week, and so I want to look at it now. Why does John use the symbol of the beast? And let me just say parenthetically, just to clarify, whenever I say, why does John do this? I know that God gave this to John to write. I'm not imagining for a moment that John was so brilliant that he came up with all these symbols. I think God gave this to John to write, and John writes it for our benefit. But why does he choose a beast? And I think it is the choice is deliberate. In the Old Testament, the beast is a symbol of rebellion. From the beginning, the Garden of Eden. Do you know the first verse of chapter 3? Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. In the NIV, we have, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. So beast, rebellion, the serpent causing or leading 
uh, Eve into sin. In the giving of the law, a distinction is made between clean and unclean animals, between holy and unholy things. And so God tells his people, you must therefore make a distinction between the clean and unclean animals, between unclean and clean birds. Do not defile yourselves. You are holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Holy, clean, unholy beast. When Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel was filled with pride and he said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built by the, the mighty, I'm sorry, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Immediately God caused him to live like a beast for seven years. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. You think you're so great? Here, I will reduce you to a beast, that which is in rebellion against God. In Psalm 22, an amazing psalm that describes beforehand the scene around the cross as Jesus is crucified. The mention of animals, I think, is striking. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. In the book of Daniel, the use of animals to describe world empires. Why, why does Daniel's, well, again, God through Daniel, leopard, lion, bear, why? Well, because you know the leopard is fast and the lion is strong. No, no, no. God uses these symbols to show those who are in rebellion against God. World empires are an attempt on the part of human beings to stand up independent, independent of God, to say, we are sufficient, we will take care of ourselves. It's the Tower of Babel all over again. But here we have these worldwide empires seeking to provide security apart from the rule of God. And so when we come here to chapter 13 and we are told about a beast from the sea, that's a double rebellion. That's chaos. The sea, the Gentile nations, unholy, and then a beast. And then the beast is described as having characteristics of a leopard, a bear, and a lion from Daniel 7. It is a political entity. It is an empire that seeks to stand up on its own, apart from God, and to say, I am sufficient. By the way, we are told that it has ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns. It's like, well, again, with, with the symbols, you know, come on, John, what, what's with the symbols? Well, go back to chapter 12. This is the way the dragon is described. The beast from the sea is in the image of the dragon. The Roman Empire, which is what John is talking about, is in the image of Satan itself as it seeks to persecute God's people. And so the passage ends. We saw last week in verse number 10, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Today we continue, and amazingly enough, we will look at one verse. Um, but it is to prepare us for next week, because next week we get to the part that everybody wants to know about, 
666. You know, that part. Ooh, what's that about? But unless we understand the place of symbolism, I, I think what we will end up doing is making a mockery of the book of Revelation and not understanding what is being said. That's why you have all these different interpretations because people are saying, well, that symbolizes this, this represents that. Well, no. What does the scripture say? What does the Old Testament say? Here we have the second beast, the beast from the land. Verse number 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. The first beast comes from the Gentiles, from the sea. The second comes from the land, that is, from the Jews. And we've not spent much time on this. And frankly, the NIV is not our friend here because it keeps using the word earth instead of land. And land, in fact, is what is intended. Because when you say earth, you think the whole planet. But in fact, what is intended is the land of Israel. There's a very close connection. You know, Israel refers to the people. It also refers to the land. Throughout the book of Revelation, we have seen the contrast, though, between the sea and the land. One represents Gentiles, the other represents the Jews. Who is this second beast? Well, at this point, we're going to sort of cheat because we're going to look ahead to help us get through this passage. In chapter 16, verse 19, and chapter 19, verse 20, we are told who this beast is. He is the false prophet. The false prophet. What we are told in this passage is that he sort of props up the first one. He gives spiritual or religious legitimacy to the first beast. But at this point, it is enough, I think, for you to know that he is the false prophet. Jesus warned his listeners, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Don't think that the beast here is one single individual, but rather the whole, the whole nation, if you wish, this whole religious system that began to support the Roman Empire. We will see that as we go along. But there is something, and I think perhaps if this is the only thing you get from the sermon today, besides the symbol stuff, uh, this is what I want you to get. False prophets come from among God's people. False prophets don't come from the Gentiles, if you wish. They don't come from the unbelievers. They come from God's people. This is something I hadn't really thought about. But if you go through scripture, whenever you have false prophets, they come from among God's covenant people. I mean, Moses told the Israelites this in Deuteronomy chapter 13, that there would be false prophets from among them who would be able to perform miraculous signs and wonders who would then tell Israel to follow false gods and that they would, in fact, be Israelites themselves. They would come from among God's people. This is the case here in Revelation 13. Um, Already in the Revelation, we've seen this in chapters 2 and 3, where John wrote about the synagogue of Satan. Synagogue, we're thinking this is good, This, this is where God's people meet together, God's covenant people. And John says, no, 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 no. This is the synagogue of Satan. False prophets come from God's people. Uh, Paul told the Ephesians this in what is a very emotional passage in Acts chapter 20. That he was leaving, he would never see them again. 
And he said, I know that from your midst, and he's talking to the leadership of the church, by the way, he's talking to the elders of Ephesus, that from you will come wolves who will try to destroy the church. False prophets come from within God's people, not generally from outside. Because they know the language, they say certain things, we're like, oh, they said, bless. They said, Lord. They said, praise the Lord. They must be Christians. And people run after them and they don't realize that they are false prophets. The beast is described as having two horns like a lamb. Well, wait a minute. Lambs don't have horns. So we know something is wrong here. Something's wrong with this picture. But this is what gives him away. He's a counterfeit. He's not a real lamb. He's a counterfeit lamb. A lamb with horns. But why would he even want to be a lamb? Because he wants to counterfeit the real lamb. The lamb of God. And that's why people would come and say, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the lamb of God. But we know that in fact they're not because he has horns and lambs don't have horns. Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount Watch out for false prophets. And remember, Jesus is talking to Jews. There are no Gentiles there. I don't, well, there might not, there may have been some, but not very many. He's talking to the Jewish people. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. They're lambs with horns. Watch out. They are counterfeit. But he spoke like a dragon, we are told. Ah, now we begin to see that he is, in fact, like the dragon. And how does the dragon talk? How does the dragon talk? Well, we've seen in the Garden of Eden that he uses deceptive, seductive, subtle speech. He still does that today. But more than that, he is a liar. He is a slanderer. He is a blasphemer. And the Jewish people had been persecuting the church even during the time of Jesus. But the book of Acts records just a long line, a long history of the Jews persecuting the church. And what did they do? They lie, they slander, they blaspheme. Let me just give you a brief list here. The case of Stephen, Acts 6. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. They produce false witnesses who testify. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And wouldn't you know it, it's the first place they go to, and what do they run into? They run into a Jewish false prophet, Elymas. And Paul said to him, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Wherever Paul went in Asia Minor, the Jews stirred up the Gentiles in chapter 14. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Lies, slander, blasphemy. In Thessalonica, but the Jews were jealous of Paul's success, we might say. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Yeah, he speaks like the dragon, doesn't he? In chapters 21, they falsely accused Paul of bringing Greeks into the temple area and therefore, and thereby defiling the temple. 
In chapter 24, they go to Caesarea before Felix the governor and they accuse him of being a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world and trying to desecrate the temple. Chapter 25, they do the same thing before Festus. Yes, the false prophet, the second beast, is a counterfeit. He looks amazingly like the Lamb, but he's got horns, so we know something is wrong. But he doesn't speak like the Lamb of God. He speaks like the dragon. Subtle, seductive speech. And in terms of persecution, lies, slander, and blasphemy. The Lord willing, we will pick this up next week to see how this persecution takes shape. How the second beast supports the first beast. Gives spiritual legitimacy to it. Hey, the Romans aren't that bad. They're doing God's work. And if you think about it, if you know the New Testament at all, the Jews used the Romans to kill Jesus. The Jews used the Romans to arrest Paul. I mean, time and time again, you have the religious people using the political people to accomplish their goals. But now it's going to happen on an unprecedented scale. The church will be devastated. And God wants his people to be prepared. He wants them to endure and to stay pure. And so he has John to write this book. Just to wrap this up and just for you, things for you to consider, where do false prophets come from? They come from among God's people. That's where false prophets come from. But it always seems to surprise us, doesn't it? We always think that the, the falseness is out there. We never think it's going to come from among God's people. Well, it does. The second thing is, how are we to read the scriptures? How are we to read the scriptures? And I think at this point, it needs to be said, we need to read the scriptures with humility. You know, I think it's, it's somewhat easy to be humble reading the book of Revelation, because you're like, I don't get it. You know, Lord, help me, I don't get this. But you know what? When you're going through the Gospels and the Epistles, oh, I get this. I get this. And we lack the humility, I think, that God requires of his people. We need to understand that for all we do understand, there's more that we don't understand. And it is wrong for us. It's very natural for us, but it is very wrong for us to approach Scripture with a cavalier attitude. Oh yeah, I've read this before. I know this part. I get this part. I've, yeah, Damon preached on this. I know this part. No. We are to read God's word with humility. And to recognize that God had it written in the way that he saw fit. The Psalms are songs. They're poetry. But the Gospels are not. The book of Acts is a history book. But the epistles are not. God didn't have things written simply in one way so that we'd all be comfortable. We're going to have to use our brains. We're going to have to think. But more than that, we are going to have to humble ourselves before God that he would give us understanding. What are your expectations when you read the Bible? What are your expectations? That you will completely get it? Well, you'll be disappointed. Or deceived, because if you think, oh, I, I totally get this, then <laughs> no, you don't. Something's wrong.
Is it so that you will know the future? Now, if you want people, if you want people to read something, tell them this will tell you what's going to happen in the future. They, they want to know what's going to happen in the future. Is that why you read scripture? Or is it to endure and to stay pure? That's why John writes this letter. It's for his readers to endure and to stay pure. As he said, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. The things we've talked about today I think are particularly important as we will continue the Lord willing next week in the rest of Revelation chapter 13. Let's pray together. Our Father, I fear that it is a lack of humility on our part that we are impatient with how your word is written. Though we might never say so directly, deep down we wonder if we couldn't do a better job of making the message plainer. We lack humility. And for this we ask your forgiveness and your grace. As we talked about in Sunday school, we live in a world of great darkness. And unless we appreciate that, I think we will fail to see the light of your word. Help us to be humble and to be patient. More than that, to be people who put into action what we have studied and read. To know that we don't have to know the whole story. We don't have to know everything perfectly to obey you. Whatever we understand, then that's what we are to do. We do not always understand what you are doing in our lives and in the lives of others. We don't understand why there is a dragon and a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. But you are the Lord God Almighty. You have called us to be your people. You have called us to endure and to stay pure. And by your grace, and only by your grace, may this happen in our lives. May we think about the things that have been said today. Meditate on them in the days to come. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. May we be salt in a world that lacks purpose. And we pray this in the name of your Son, who is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together?
Our benediction is from Paul's doxology at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.